Good morning, church family. It is wonderful to see all of you here this morning as we begin week three of our study, a study through the Gospel of Mark, as today we will be looking specifically at just two verses, those verses being from Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, or the temptation of Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, church, although we are only three weeks into our study of the Gospel of Mark, the scene that we will be looking at today, it really is a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus Christ. And I say that because up until this point, church, everything that we have seen thus far in the text has been nothing other than happy, happy, and joy, joy. I mean, we were told right out of the gate by John Mark that this is the gospel, that this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And thus, Mark then, he opens this gospel by telling his readers that this Jesus, that this Christ, that this Son of God, that he had a forerunner who was sent before him by God, verse 2, in order to prepare the way for the Lord. And that forerunner's name, church, it was none other than John the Baptist, who faithfully and diligently and humbly prepared the way for the Lord by, verse 4, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In essence, by calling, verse 5, all the people of Judea and all of Jerusalem to acknowledge their sins, to confess their sins, to repent of their sins, and to turn back to God. And those who did, church, who truly repented of their sins, they then were baptized by John in the River Jordan as a sign of their repentance. However, as we saw last week, church, not only was John the Baptist called to preach to and to baptize sinful Jews in the River Jordan, but he was also called to baptize a man who came not from Judea, not from Jerusalem, but instead from a little despised town called Nazareth. And that man's name, church, verse 9, was Jesus who was baptized by John, as Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 puts it, in order to fulfill all righteousness. Meaning, Jesus Christ was baptized by John in the River Jordan in order to keep perfectly the will of God and to identify himself perfectly with the children of God. And thus, as we see in verse 10, that as soon as Jesus came out of the water at his baptism, the heavens then were torn open and the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. In essence, anointing Jesus as the Christ and empowering him in the flesh for the very ministry of being the suffering servant who would ultimately take away the sins of the world. And not only that, church, but God the Father then also pronounced in verse 11 that this man named Jesus truly is my beloved son and with whom I am well pleased. And thus it is in this Trinitarian moment, church, where we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present that we see the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus Christ. However, as Kent Hughes points out here, 
that just as the heavens opened up at Jesus' baptism, so too now does hell seem to open up, since it is now Satan's goal to try to squash and subvert and destroy the very ministry of Jesus Christ. That ministry to destroy the works of the devil and to bring salvation to the world. Which takes us now, church, to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, church, which is, Jesus Christ, although tempted like man in every way, did what the first Adam could not do, that being to overcome the temptations of the evil one. Jesus Christ, although tempted like man in every way, did what the first Adam could not do, that being to overcome the temptations of the evil one. Thus at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to Mark chapter 1, where we will be looking specifically this morning at verses 12 and 13. Now, if you are joining us this morning and do not have or own a Bible, please know that there are Bibles located in each and every chair in this sanctuary. Thus, please feel free to grab a Bible out of the chair in front of you and turn to page 836 and join us as we hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, church, we are in Mark chapter 1 this morning, looking specifically at verses 12 and 13 which read, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, holy, holy holy. Only you, God, are holy. Father, what an honor it is that we can't even imagine this morning to come into this sanctuary and to worship a God who is holy, who is separate from us, other than us, and perfectly righteous and who loved us and sent his Son into the world to save sinners from their sin, to keep the law for us and to pay the price for our breaking of the law. And that you have given us your very word, your revelation in the scriptures that we seek to study this morning, and Father, that I seek to herald and proclaim and preach. Father, I pray that you send your Spirit among us this morning. Open the eyes of this dear flock. Open their ears, soften their hearts to receive, that you, to receive what you have for them on this day. And Father, I pray that you help my lisping, stammering tongue this morning to speak boldly, confidently, because this is not the word of West. This is the word of God, your word, which is perfect, infallible, and sufficient for everything in the Christian life. And let me herald it so that you be glorified. Lord, if I look like a fool in the eyes of man, but you be glorified, so be it. 
for it is to you and you alone this morning be the glory. Do your mighty work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one. The Son of God came down from heaven to follow perfectly the will of his Father, no matter the danger and no matter the consequences. The Son of God came down from heaven to follow perfectly the will of his Father, no matter the danger and no matter the consequences. Verse 12, which reads, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. So following the glorious and beautiful and wonderful moment, church, where Jesus Christ at his baptism was affirmed by God the Father to be the very Son of God and anointed by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah. Mark says in verse 12 that immediately then the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Thus, the Holy Spirit Church, who literally just descended from heaven like a dove and rested on Jesus in a way that was peaceful and kind and gentle and noble, is now, with the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus Christ, now complete, just driving Jesus, verse 12, out into the wilderness. And please note here, church, for it's not as if the Holy Spirit here is forcing Jesus to do something that he doesn't want to do or to go somewhere where he doesn't want to go. Instead, when Mark says that the Holy Spirit, verse 12, drove Jesus out into the wilderness, what he means is that the Holy Spirit was leading and guiding and compelling Jesus to go out into the wilderness. Wilderness as in a place that is dangerous, a place that is hazardous, a place that is threatening, and a place, verse 13, where wild animals that could literally rip your face off roam. For that is the place where the Son of God is being driven to by the Holy Spirit. And thus, as James Edwards notes, it's almost as if we have a picture of Jesus Christ here as the scapegoat from the Day of Atonement. Whereas the scapegoat was loaded up with the sins of Israel and then banished and or driven out into the wilderness. Nevertheless, Jesus here, who is full of the Holy Spirit, Luke chapter 4, just goes out into this forsaken and terrifying and dangerous wilderness alone, all in order to perfectly submit to the will of his Father. And he doesn't grumble about it, nor does he say that he's not going because it's too risky or dangerous or threatening or because it doesn't have the luxuries or the pleasantries or the comforts that he wants and desires and thinks that he needs, for he doesn't say any of that, church, but instead Jesus Christ, who simply desires to be completely guided by the Holy Spirit, will go wherever he needs to go and do whatever he needs to do in in order to follow perfectly the will of his Father. And thus, before we go on in the text this morning, church, I want to pause here for, for a second and make crystal clear that it is better for you, Christian, to have your life be led by the Spirit of God and to put yourself at risk than it is to be guided by the world and to be safe and secure. 
that it is better for you, Christian, to follow the will of God and to be scorned by the world than it is to follow the ways of the world and to be comfortable, that it is absolutely better for you, Christian, to follow the commandments of God, to keep the precepts of God, and to submit your life to the very word of God and have all the luxuries of this life be completely stripped away than it is for you to follow this wicked and adulterous generation and to prosper. For we are living at a time, church, where even certain pastors now are telling their congregants that God's greatest desire for them in this life and on this earth is for them to be healthy and wealthy and comfortable and prosperous and safe and affluent and secure. And quite frankly, church, that is a lie from the depths of hell. For make no mistake, our God, brother Christian, sister Christian, requires that we be be faithful, not that of comfortable. Author Ken Curtis, he wrote an article about the church father, Polycarp, who was a personal disciple of the Apostle John and the pastor of the church in Smyrna, that toward the end of Polycarp's life, that authorities who were fully armed broke into his house one day as if they were arresting a criminal. However, Polycarp, in that moment, welcomed them in as if they were his friends, talked to them, and ordered that food and drink be served to them, to which he made the request that he have one hour to pray before they take him away. And the officers, in overhearing his prayer, began to second-guess themselves and think, what are we doing arresting a man like this? So the governor at the time He said to Polycarp simply, curse Jesus Christ and I will release you. To which Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. Thus, how can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? So the governor then threatened Polycarp with a wild beast in an effort to get him to recant. To which Polycarp again replied, bring them forth. I would change my mind if it meant going from worse to the better, but not if it means I have to change from the right to the wrong. Thus the governor's patience eventually wore out, and he decided that Polycarp was to be burned at the stake, to which Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and is over, but the judgment on the ungodly, it lasts forever. So the fire was prepared and Polycarp lifted his eyes toward heaven and prayed, Father, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy on this day that I might take a portion of the martyrs in the cup of Jesus Christ. Among these may I today be welcomed before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. And thus as other church historians have pointed out, Polycarp then kept the exact words that the Apostle John penned in Revelation 2.10 to the church in Smyrna, that being to be faithful unto death. Church, Jesus Christ, driven by 
the Spirit of God and in complete submission to the will of God, willingly went wherever the Spirit led him and did whatever the Father asked of him, even if it meant putting his health at risk, his comforts at risk, and giving everything up the world says that he should cling to in order to follow perfectly the will of his Father. And thus, as George Smallridge puts it, we too, in like manner, Christian, ought to cheerfully in all things comply our our lives to God's will and pleasure, and nothing ought to hinder us from our performance of this duty. Not hunger, not thirst, not deserts, not even devils ought to be terrible to us, for we are safe since we are under the conduct of Christ and his Spirit. Therefore, brother Christian, sister Christian, let me ask, what then is guiding and driving and motivating you this morning? For is it the possession of wealth, or is it obedience to the will of the Father? For is it being as comfortable and as healthy and as safe as humanly possible, or is it absolute submission to the will of your heavenly Father? For is it being loved by the world, accepted by the world, received by the world, and even that of being approved by the world, or is it being approved by God as a devoted worker of God who is okay with setting everything aside in order to follow faithfully the will of God, even if it makes you poor? even if it makes you uncomfortable, and even if it puts your reputation at risk. For Jesus Christ did not say, church, that if anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me only when it's safe, or only when it's comfortable, or only to places where there's Wi-Fi and air conditioning and cell service. For he didn't say any of that, church. Instead, he said quite simply, if anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. And thus, as those who have been literally saved by the blood of the Lamb, by the one who gave up everything for us, are you then, Christian, willing in the here and now to die to self, to reject the desires of the flesh, and to go wherever God calls you to go, to do whatever God calls you to do, and to obey whatever God's word calls you to obey, so that in the end, your Father, who art in heaven can say to you, Christian, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into the joy of your master and not depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, for I never knew you. Therefore, let me encourage you this morning, Christian, to follow the lead of Jesus Christ and to let your life be driven by the Spirit of God as you submit yourself to the will of God as revealed to you, Christian, in the very Word of God. And although that gate is narrow, Christian, and although that way is hard, I promise you that it is better for you to walk in the Spirit of God and to lose absolutely everything in this life than for you to gain the whole world and to ultimately lose your own soul. Thus seek the will of God, Christian, even at the risk of losing everything. For our God, church, he alone is worth it. Which brings us to point number two, which is this. When being tempted by the devil, even Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, went to the word of God. When being tempted by the devil, even Jesus Christ, the very son of God, went 
to the word of God. Verse 13. It says, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So we see here in verse 13, church, exactly why Jesus was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And the answer is, verse 13, to be tempted. Now before we go on, church, please make the distinction here that the Holy Spirit wasn't driving Jesus out into the wilderness to tempt Jesus himself. For as James writes in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And thus, although God the Father allowed his Son, Jesus Christ, to be tempted here, it was not God the Father tempting Jesus to do evil. But it was instead, as we see in verse 13, Satan. Now, although Mark does not tell us exactly how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness throughout the course of this 40-day trial, we do see in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke the culmination of the temptation of Jesus Christ. For as Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 4, that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, Jesus, was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus here was not only in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, but he was also fasting in that he ate absolutely nothing, as Luke 4.2 states, during that time as well. Now, I don't know about you, church, but I can't go five hours without food before getting hungry, let alone one day, let alone one week, let alone one month, let alone 40 days. Therefore, this idea of hungry here, church, it doesn't simply mean that if Jesus doesn't get a snack soon, that he might get a little hangry. Instead, hungry here, it means that at this stage in the game, Jesus is literally feeling the effects of starvation. And it is at that moment, church, when Satan comes to Jesus and says to him that if you are the Son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread, Matthew 4, 3. In essence, saying to Jesus that since you are the Son of God, and since you are literally out here just starving in the wilderness, why don't you just reject this utterly ridiculous and embarrassing and demeaning plan that your Father has for you, and as God himself in the flesh, just make yourself some food, satisfy your hunger, do what makes you happy, and stop following this narrow-minded will of your Father. To which Jesus says back to him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, referring to Deuteronomy 8.3, meaning that I, Jesus, will not use my power or my sonship or my divinity here in order to do anything outside of the will of my Father, even if my physical body desires it, for my goal is to be faithful to my Father's will and not that of anything else, even if that means I must remain hungry. And thus Satan then takes Jesus to the holy city 
and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Matthew 4, verses 5 and 6. And Satan here, he is not only referencing, but also misapplying, mind you, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And is essentially trying to get Jesus to put God the Father to the test and to force God to prove that he will really take care of his son Jesus Christ in his time of need. However, Jesus, he responds back to Satan this way, for he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, referring to Deuteronomy 6.16. Basically saying, as Mark Strauss puts it, that we are not to try to manipulate God into doing our will. For God is not our Santa Claus church, nor our fairy godmother, nor our own personal genie who we can control and exploit and manipulate into doing for us exactly as we please. And Jesus Christ, he knew this church, for he knew that the righteous did not live by trying to manipulate the will of God, but instead live by placing their faith in the perfect will of God. To which Satan then, he takes his biggest swing yet at Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, which reads, The devil then took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So Satan here, He is showing Jesus Christ all the kingdoms of the world and makes him the promise, a promise that he could never keep, mind you, that all these I will give you, and that Jesus Christ, you can be king over all the kingdoms of the world just like your father promised you, and you can do it without having to go to the cross without any of the suffering, without any of the pain, without any of the punches or nails or blood or thorns, for you can be King Jesus over all the kingdoms of the world without having to bear the wrath of your heavenly Father on behalf of some wicked and sinful people who you know don't even deserve your grace. All you need to do, Jesus, is just bow down and worship me. And with the temptation of being made king over all the kingdoms of the earth, without having to be the suffering servant and to bear the wrath of a holy God for the likes of sinful man, Jesus says to Satan, be gone. For you shall worship the Lord your God and only him you shall serve. Referring to Deuteronomy 6.13. And with that church, the devil left. And Jesus Christ proved once and for all that he was no Adam. For Adam, the very first man ever created, he failed the test. And he couldn't overcome the temptations of the evil one, even from the comfort of his home, the Garden of Eden, with a full belly and with his helpmate by his side. Whereas the second Adam, Jesus Christ, while starving in the wilderness and all All alone, he passed the test, endured the trial, and overcame victoriously the temptation of the evil one. And thus, 
through his perfect obedience, church. In the wilderness and throughout the rest of the days of his life, we now, church, can be made righteous in him. Therefore, thanks be to God this morning for Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the new Adam, the last Adam who passed the test, fended off the temptations of the devil, and perfectly obeyed the will of his Father, also that we as the children of God don't have to perish in our sin, but instead we can be raised to new life in Jesus Christ, clothed in his perfect righteousness. And thus, as we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. And non-Christian, when I say that we need to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ in order to be saved, I say that because the first Adam, our first father, the first man ever created, he was a sinner. And thus, his sin nature was then passed on to the entire human race, including even to you, non-Christian. And thus, you were born a sinner non-Christian. You are a sinner non-Christian, and you will die a sinner non-Christian and ultimately be condemned for your sin unless somehow you are forgiven of your sin and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is possible for you today, non-Christian, because Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he literally came into this world as truly God and as truly man and lived for us, non-Christian, the life that we or Adam could ever live. Meaning Jesus Christ, he kept perfectly the precepts of God, walked faithfully in the will of God and followed precisely all the commandments of God in order to to fulfill the law of God, non-Christian, perfectly and completely for the children of God. However, keeping the law of God for the children of God, that in and of itself was not enough to save sinners from their sin. For a price still needed to be paid, a sacrifice still needed to be made. And thus Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, also willingly then took our sins upon himself and died a sinner's death in our place. And that he, Jesus Christ, bore the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins by being crucified on a cross at Calvary and giving himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. And you know what, non-Christian? It worked. And what I mean by that is the perfect and spotless and sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it completely appeased the wrath of a holy God toward his sinful children. And thus, as the proof of all of this non-Christian, that Jesus Christ was indeed accepted by God as a sacrifice on our behalf, three days later, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead, and he defeated sin and destroyed death and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you then in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. For if anyone is in 
Christ, non-Christian. He is a new creation. No longer dead in their sins, but alive in Jesus Christ. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Christ. And today will be the day that you are forgiven of your sins and given, non-Christian, the gift of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, earlier in the sermon this morning, I closed point one by encouraging you all to follow the lead of Jesus Christ and to not be driven by the desires of the flesh and follow the ways of the world, but instead to be driven and guided and led by the Spirit of God in order to follow faithfully the very will of God. However, I also think that there is much we can glean here practically this morning as Christians from the temptation of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus was tempted by Satan to command the stones to turn to bread, to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple and to fall down and to worship Satan, each time Jesus responded to Satan with, it is written, for it is written, and again it is written. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, church. When dealing with the temptations and the deceptions and the lies of the evil one, he didn't go to the New York Times for advice, nor to the latest TED Talk for enlightenment, nor to CNN for guidance, nor to the latest self-help book for counsel, but instead Jesus Christ went to the Word of God, trusted in the Word of God, applied the very Word of God to his life, and overcame the temptations of the evil one. Thus, when you are feeling tempted, Christian, to seek the desires of the flesh, to chase the pride of life, or to believe the lies of the devil, do not run then to the folly of the world and over to overcome the temptations of the world, but instead take heed and open up your Bibles, which are, as one unknown author put it, the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holies, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven open, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. and is a mine of wealth a paradise of glory and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ, yes, to glory itself 
for eternity. And thus, when you meet a temptation, Christian, that is trying to overtake you, a lie that is trying to overwhelm you, a trap that is trying to catch, corral, and ultimately kill you, then you must swing the sword of the Spirit, Christian, which is the Word of God, in order to combat the temptations, the lies, and the traps of the evil one, since it is only the truth of God's Word that has the power to set you free. However, brother Christian, sister Christian, in order to be able to swing the sword of the Spirit and apply God's Word properly to our lives, we first then need to know what God's Word actually says. And thus we must, 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 as a church body, seek to read and to know and to learn and absorb and comprehend the very depths of the Word of God each and every day, so that when temptation does strike us and desires burn within us and the lies of the evil one start beating against us, we can then boldly turn to the Word of God, the Word that we have stored up into our hearts and allow its precepts to guide us, its promises to strengthen us, and its doctrines to ground us, knowing that the truth of God's word will never lead us into temptation, but will always direct us away from the lies of the evil one. Therefore, do not live a life, Christian, where you only feed on bread alone, but instead feast regularly, substantially, and unashamedly on every word that comes from the mouth of God so that you will be able to flee from the temptations of the evil one and be faithful to the will of your God, Christian, faithful even unto death. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body take serious our call to know and to meditate on and to memorize and to immerse ourselves in the very word of God. For its sum is truth, it offers comfort in our affliction, keeps us from the evil one, lights our ways, guides our path, and its message is salvation. Thus when the temptation of the evil one does come knocking on our door, Lord, help us to lean not on our own understanding or to go running to the world, to Mr. Worldly Wise Man, but instead to go to the truth that you have given us in your word. For your word, God, is sufficient for us in every area of our Christian life. Therefore, help us, Father, as a church body, to store up your word in our hearts so that we may not sin against you, but instead be guided by the Spirit as we walk in the Spirit while wielding the sword of the Spirit so that we, as the children of God, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and make absolutely no provision for our flesh. Let's pray.